Sound Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Hello, and welcome to Tone Vendors. I'll be your host today. My name is Timothy Meerhead. Renee could not be with us today. It's been a little while since our last episode. Both Renee and I have been crazy busy cutting and mixing, so the podcast had to be put a bit on the back burner. But we are back now, and we have some really cool stuff lined up for you over the next few episodes, so stay tuned. Today, though, we will be hearing an interview I did last spring with Daniel Pellerin and Steve Monroe. Both of these guys have been longtime collaborators with the director Adam Agoyan. Agoyan is one of Canada's most acclaimed homegrown directors. He's best known for the film The Sweet Hereafter, which was nominated for Best Picture and Best Screenplay Academy Awards in 1998. Agoyan has been making films with Steve and Daniel since the early 90s, and as a team, they have progressed from making small indie films to larger art house favorites to Oscar nominees, to mainstream films starring A-list actors, all while staying out of the Hollywood system entirely. Daniel and Steve have recently wrapped up post on two Agoyan films. The Captive, a suspense thriller starring Ryan Reynolds and Rosario Dawson, as well as The Devil's Knot, a historical drama with Colin Firth and Reese Witherspoon as the leads. Steve was the sound designer on these films, and Daniel Pellerin was the re-recording engineer. They sat down to talk to me about the process behind the sound on these films and how audio post has changed over the course of their careers. First up, we have Daniel Pellerin. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? Uh, good. Excellent. Daniel is a longtime re-recording mixer on films. He's an industry vet with a list of award-winning films like Sunshine, Being Julia, Sweet Hereafter, some more popcorn movies like American Psycho and Halloween Resurrection, and three of my all-time personal favorite films, Hedwig and the Angry Itch, Project Grizzly, and Highway 61. Uh, and sitting beside him, someone I'm meeting for the first time today, Steve Monroe. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Outstanding. Steve is the supervising sound editor and sound designing on the films we're talking about today. He has an equally impressive IMDB page featuring the gray Paul Schrader's autofocus and another one of my all-time favorites, Ron Mann's doc, Comic Book Confidential. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having us. How did you guys first meet? I think the uh, first film would have been Red Rocket, which would have been in the mid-80s, something like that. Mm-hmm. It was a short on the TTC Streetcars directed by Colin Strayer. Um, and I had picture and sound cut it and... Uh, uh, Daniel danced with the faders and mixed it, <laughs> and uh, uh, we ended up with a, a great little track, and um, we've worked together on numerous projects since. Cool. So, uh, do you want to just quickly give us some of your personal histories, how you got into the business? Steve, do you want to go first? Studied film uh, at Ryerson here in Toronto. Had the intention when I came out of being a filmmaker, figured the best way to learn filmmaking was in the editing room, so I started off as an assistant picture editor. Um, did a little bit of picture cutting, and on that particular film, Red Rocket, we didn't have a budget for um, a sound editor, so I did the sound edit. Had absolutely no idea what I was doing, but sort of knew what I wanted. And that little film ended up winning an award for sound. <laughs> so all of a sudden, uh, my contemporaries and, and fellow filmmakers from Ryerson and, and within the sort of indie community started calling up saying, hey, help me out with the sound on, on my film. And at the same time, I was working at a documentary house uh, editing, um, ended up through fate 
delivering some equipment down to uh, um, Bob Clark's um, house or, or um, facility where they were cutting Turk 182. And um, when I got down there, I, um, I was asked if I, they needed a, an assistant and they asked me if I wanted to stay. And so I hooked up with uh, Dave Evans and Wayne Griffin and Ken Healy Ray was the supervising sound editor. And uh, they had, I mean, Ken worked on huge films. I mean, absolute master. And um, I ended up being working as Dave Evans' assistant. And Dave and I worked together for, th I think about three years after that, I was assisting him. And then finally, you know, towards the end, I was, um, you know, cutting alongside with him. And then uh, I ended up going out on my own. So that was kind of all happening at the same time. I had absolutely no intention of ending up being a sound guy <laughs> um, and really sort of learned through osmosis and was very fortunate to work with some phenomenal people and phenomenal directors along the way. So That's great. I was uh, doing some research for this and I went to your IMDb page and Turk 182 was the first thing listed and I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. That was a great film. It oh, fun. it was an yeah. unbelievable experience. Um, Bob Clark had uh, the old, I believe it was the old Corning Mansion, right on the ocean, looking straight across it to Nantucket. Half the house was basically set up for post-production, so he had this huge garage that he had turned into a screening room with two 35-millimeter changeover projectors, and I can't remember, six or eight cutting rooms in that wing of the house, and then the main picture cutting room. And you, one side of the of the house looked out over a, an apple orchard. The other side looked out over the ocean in this lagoon. I mean, you could not have asked for a better environment to work in. And that was the first feature film I had worked on. And if I recall correctly, the budget was, I think it was around $18 million. And at the time, it yeah, was huge. So here we get this newbie sort of showing up and going, wow, this is what features are all about. <laughs> it's like, I kind of like this. Um, it, it was a Dolby Stereo film. There weren't a lot of libraries out there in stereo, so most of what we cut, as far as effects go, we recorded. So it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience from that point of view as well. I mean, one of the things we had to record was, if you recall in the film, there was uh, the scene where, I think it was Giant Stadium, is chanting Zimmerman flew and Tyler knew. Uh, we needed that that chant, and due to the way it was it was cut, the rhythms were quite intricate and complex. We needed that chant. Just needed to pull together twenty thousand people. Twenty thousand, yeah, you know, no or, or actually a few more than that. <laughs> you know, they wanted things done properly, so we ended up flying to Kent State University, university level football game. And at halftime, we were the halftime entertainment. <laughs> so here's the entire sound crew going out onto the field. And, and Ken, who was the, the supervisor, was directing the entire stadium Wow! in this chant. And we're out there with recorders recording. They had given out flyers and saying, OK, at halftime, you're going to be chanting. And they had it all written out for them. So it was, uh, I don't think I've ever had an experience on a feature film like that since I mean pretty it was pretty crazy it was pretty um pretty cool experience yeah 
So, Daniel, let's hear your story. How'd you get into the business? I was very interested in electronics, and, and I tinkered with a lot of audio equipment, in, including early tape recorders. I had one of the first Philips cassette recorders that actually had a speed vari variation. So I started experimenting with sound on a very basic level, uh, but I was in music. I was actually you know, working in a band, doing sound for bands, and recording groups, so learning all the techniques without actually having learned, just from books and, and uh, reading interviews of people, you know, of what was being done at the time. I was in Ottawa, I was at Algonquin College, which was considered one of the best courses in North America for hands-on. Uh, we had cameras, we had Niagara's, we, you know, we had all the, the really best equipment for field recording. Our, our teachers were, uh, for the aesthetics, were from the Prague School of, of Film, that had defected in 1968 from Prague. And the other half was from the NFB in Montreal, and I took my course in French. So we had Joe Champagne and Jacques Chivigny would teach us sound. Uh, Jacques was a, a sound recordist, and, and Joe Champagne was a, a sound designer. He had worked on really, really large Hollywood films, but he would come and teach us, you know, just basic technique. And so we had a really nice sort of rounded experience. So once I graduated, I went to Holland and worked in, in the big, one of the biggest labs, international labs in uh, the Netherlands, which was in The Hague, and started working in the sound lab. And that's when the first Dolby tracks started coming in. In 1979, the first Dolby uh, optical cameras were being designed. So we had a Debris camera from France and Dolby in London, England, just across the channel, we're actually designing this, this optical track camera so that you could play a four-track optical track with film. It still hadn't been consolidated, and as Steve was starting, this equipment was, was actually available. So, and you could create that track in a studio and then reproduce it in a theater. Uh, so that's, it was kind of an exciting time because film sound was very basic and mono previous to that and started developing in the period when we started learning you know, our craft. So our techniques evolved with the evolving technology. And as we advanced, of course, uh, you know, things got bigger and better. And uh, we, got, we started working with uh, uh, better equipment in the beginning. When Steve and I got, uh, started together, there was no automation for these, these film sound mixing consoles. So we had to do everything with pencil marks on tape and you know uh, marks on the on the console and we'd have to punch in everything on the fly and make sure that everything matched when we were going when we when we were going through the the material so it, it was a little bit tenser and of course we had to do much more linear passes and of course as time went on and and things got more and more uh, automated it became easier and easier to do bigger and bigger soundtracks with less and less people and uh, here we are today. The film that you guys just just finished working on is The Captives, right? How, when did you f wrap that project up? It's actually The Captive. It's, it's, oh, Captive. Yeah, it's in the okay. singular, yeah. The Captive and, and um, Devil's Knot were more or less executed back to back. So literally, I think a week after we finished mixing Devil's Knot, which was in was it January of 2013, um, I think Adam was on set, you know, starting to shoot The Captive, which was uh, at, at that time called um, Queen of the Night. So then we started into sound editorial sometime in end of May or something like that. 
Uh, and then we started mixing beginning of August, if, I, if memory serves me correctly. You guys have worked on basically all of Egoyne's films, right? Pretty Most much, yeah. He comes to you, says, I've got this film. Do you guys sit down and talk about it before you've seen a screening of a rough edit, or do you wait? I mean, it, it, it depends um, on the project. Devil's Knot was um, interesting in the sense that it was based on true events. It's basically the story of the West Memphis Three. For those of you who are not familiar with, with the story, it was um, three young kids that were um, wrongly charged with the murder of three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis. And um, it really is the story of them being railroaded in those three were sent to prison, found guilty, sent to prison. One sat on death row for 18 years. And, um, you know, they were finally released about, what, a year ago or a year and a half ago, just before the completion of the film. The film really deals with from the time of the murders to the time of the guilty verdict. Okay. The subject has been covered by, there's four amazing documentaries out there, three of them, the Paradise Lost series, uh, that really explore um, the whole case in detail. I really don't like to read in too, too much detail Adam's scripts before he shoots them because I like to see, you know, an assembly of the film and then I'll immediately read the script and it's like, okay, what am I, what am I missing from the script that the sound can add? However, on this film, because it was based on true events, I researched like crazy. I mean, I watched all of those films several times I read everything I could possibly find on, on the case. John Larange, one of the sound editors on the film, the two of us drove down to West Memphis. We went to all the locations that the events actually happened, although it was you know almost 20 years later. I felt it was important to hear the space, hear the environment that it had happened, and get a sense of the community. We recorded a ton of stuff. That really helped in figuring out sort of the sonic space and, and the environment. You know, how that environment really affected, I think, the um, community and the story. And But I, I think that that trip down to investigate the environment definitely had a positive impact on how we played the environment. It made us more daring, I think. I hadn't realized, you know, coming from north, up north, but having heard films from down there, that insects could be so prevalent in a scene. Like, they were overwhelming, in fact. It was like being at Niagara Falls, but instead of the falls, it's insects. <laughs> and so when he captured it and we listened to the, the first tracks before we actually started working on it, I was thinking, how do, where do we start? <laughs> well, I, and so he added this wall of, of insects and said, let's add them. And, and of course, it made total sense. One scene in particular at uh, night when they're out by, um, the location where the bodies were found. You know, it's just beautiful, highly charged. I mean, Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth are just giving really intense emotional performances. I mean, just phenomenal. And the cicadas and the peepers and the, the insects are almost overpowered. I mean, it's just unbelievable how, how loud they are. There was the other, the other scene uh, at the back of the house where Reese Witherspoon is having an argument, quite a heated argument, screaming match with her husband and they're going at it and I mean the insects are so loud with my technical hat Daniel and I sat down and, and listened went you know what that's ADR creative hat you're looking at going okay you know what that performance is just killer 
we can try and I'm sure the actors are up for it but and Adam you know isn't keen on a lot of ADR to start with it's like you know what I bet you this will work and Daniel's like what are you out of your mind <laughs> no no we can make this work well how, how do you think you're gonna fix that we add more insects you add more insects what are you crazy yeah we add more insects we put them on the sides we put them here you know we sort of trick the audience here and then you know, as far as cleaning up the dialogue, that's my, I'm, that's not my job. You do that, buddy. <laughs> you, know, you try and pull the, the dialogue out. <laughs> I'm just giving you some, uh, yeah, so I'm, some I'm giving you some ammunition. diversion. <laughs> added ammunition, we would call so, it. So, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, um, I think it, it worked. I mean, you can certainly speak to that. I'm I mean, sure. You certainly couldn't get any more out of the dialogues there. No. Yeah, we went through, like, like it was pretty intense cleaning. I think we went through the first stage, a second stage, and a third stage of EQing. So, well, the first stage was basically um, just noise reducing the background noise that's not insects. So that's done kind of on the first pass with the cedar, and uh, we did do uh, one layer of isotope. Yeah, we could find just one small section where it actually was nice and you know even, and it was the previous version of isotope, so it wasn't as intelligent as the new version. Oh my God, if we had had that in there, we could have actually done even more, you know, than what we did. But that was the first stage, and so we didn't want to affect the dialogue. That was always the, the, the key to it. So we went to a second stage of noise reduction when we did, after the files were, were rendered and we were doing the final mix. We wanted to listen to it with this fame wall of insects and, and peepers that Steve provided for us. So at least now you know where you are. And so we wanted to just relieve the center. You know, I don't think there was any question where you were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at least it wasn't in the center track with the dialogue alone. Now, what happens is when he opens the wall of sound, but what you have to kind of avoid, because there was whispering, the, what we were dealing with is was whispering very close up to probably the loudest screaming that you could have, you know, as an argument, as it, as it gets in intense. So, of course, as you bring up the whispering, of course, the insects are all joining you in and coming up with it. So we wanted to, to eliminate as much of that as possible. So that was the second stage. So it was really shaping it and basically taking out one more layer of those insects, like it was layer after layer. And then on our third pass, which is when we were, uh, had finally the, effect, the effects and the music and what, all the elements in, we did uh, one more EQ. We actually selected four or five points in the in the EQ that where the insects were out of the dialogue range, and we could take like the really sharper ones that were in your ear, and sort of peek them out. On different shots, it was different insects that were sticking out because it was different angles. Mm -hmm. So by the time we had finished, it, it was pretty even, and it, it was still the insects were were quite present, but it at least felt like it was. You know, wrapped around you as opposed to being in the center and, and hitting you in the in the face. So was the final film 5-1? Yeah. Everything we've done together, except for our early ones, are all 5-1. I think Sweet Hereafter was the first 5-1 that we did. No, the adjuster, uh, the adjuster was, was 4.0. On Sweet Hereafter, all of the ambient tracks were true 5.1 recordings, mm -hmm. which was really cool. We sort of dove into that world sort of head first. There weren't too many multi-track recorders out there, certainly battery powered. So I had a magic wagon and put a mixing board in the back of it, a couple car batteries, power inverter, a D88, and tethered six microphones out from the vehicle to do all the exterior recordings. 
drove up to uh, Algonquin Park in the middle of January and recorded all these pines and winds and went to an old abandoned barn and um, I don't know what I was thinking, but... <laughs> Actually, The Sweet Hereafter, that was one of the first films that I saw in Surround. There's a scene in a uh, car wash. Mm -hmm. The car wash, yeah. Okay, so here, here was the deal with the car wash. My motto is keep it simple, okay? And especially for Canadian film, I mean, we've, we have, I think, you know, decent budgets, decent amount of time to, to mix and edit, but in comparison to a big Hollywood film, I mean, different animal, different animal. I mean, we're, we're under pretty tight schedules, and I think from the beginning of premix to the delivery of the elements was probably about four weeks. Yeah, it's been pretty consistent <clears throat> four yes, weeks. Yeah. But, you know, there's not a lot of messing around and time to experiment, and you, know, you got to be pretty focused at what you need with the car wash. To really do a car wash in, in great detail, you know, you, you need like a gazillion tracks, you know, to isolate everything. I thought, you know what, let's try and figure out a simpler way to do this. So put the mixing board in the car, power inverter, D88, mic'd the van, had two mics at the front windshield, mic pointing at the front of the windshield, at the back, had a, a kick drum microphone taped to the floorboard, just kept on driving through the car wash. So the basic track of the car wash is essentially a 5.1 recording of driving through the car wash. And then we augmented for any of the close-ups or whatever, we put like a little sprayer or, or what have you, but that is done, you know, probably in, I don't know, maybe a dozen, dozen and a half tracks. And it sounded stunning, like the first time we heard it. I mean, of course, we have uh, some music as well, so we, it was hard to choose at this point because that was music mm -hmm. as well for us, you know? Well, the effects premix <laughs> of that is just, I mean, you, you talk about it wrapping around your, your head. I mean, it was, it was amazing. you're in the car wash and you're yeah. going through it. I mean, it was just spectacular. And then, you know, Michael Dana shows up with his music. And like, okay, thanks, buddy. <laughs> but it was the world's cleanest car at the point when he yeah. finished. <laughs> you mentioned track count. Now, in modern day, 20, well, I guess 2013, when you were working on these films, what was the track count, the layout that you guys agreed to beforehand so you could... Well, start with The Sweet Hereafter, because yeah. that was a different period. The consoles no, were sure. smaller, and we had to do a lot of what we call pre-dubs. Mm -hmm. You're also organizing your tracks to make it easier on the mixers. Because if you walked into a theater with material spread out all over the place, I mean, they weren't using automation. There was no EQ automation. There was no fader automation. You, you had to be sort of thinking, okay, if I was sitting at the board and having to mix this, how do I have to lay this out? How do I make you know Daniel's life so that he's he has time to be creative instead of just sorting out a mess? Mm -hmm. You know, having had that experience really dictates or, or influences how you know, you prepare tracks now compared to, yeah, you can walk in with more tracks, you can, but you still need to really pay attention to your organization. And, and I think it's very easy to overcut material. I mean, I see that all the time. I mean, I was <clears throat> part of a project a while back where, you know, I was one of, you know, a big crew and popped into the mix theater and, you know, there were a couple hundred tracks of wind holy crap, can't you make a decision? Like, make the decision in the cutting room. Mm -hmm. That's what editing you know. is about. No, that's yeah. what editing, you make the decision and, and, you know, you have to live by it. I mean, maybe it's not always the right decision, but make a decision. And if you need to fix it afterwards, then fix it. I mean, it's not... And to go back to, to pre-mixing, yeah, I'll level stuff out. The amount of pre-dubbing that I would do in the editing room, not a lot. I mean, if I start doing that, I'm going to start handcuffing what Steve brings to us now, 
he's able to actually balance it for his own taste, and it's usually, you know, quite close to exactly where it ends up, very close, in fact. Effects and sort of sound design elements, absolutely, but yeah. certainly not dialogue. Oh, that's a whole yeah. other story. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> yeah, dialogue is a little bit more unruly, obviously, depending mm -hmm. on the recordings. But, but it, it's, I mean, it, it also is very important, the environment that you cut in. You know, budgets have tended to get a lot tighter, and I mean, the technology allows you to do so much more. I mean, that's phenomenal, I think, Dan, you yeah. agree. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the expectations, though, are far greater. Yeah. I mean, there was, if I walked in with a track that I cut 20 years ago, I'd get laughed out of the theater. You know, it just wouldn't be, you'd be off the job like that. Not, not that the, the ideas weren't there, but just the, the track preparation. You know, I mean, you go back to mag, if you needed to put a fade on something, you were a piece of sandpaper and a razor blade and trying to, you know, sand ticks out and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, the reality is there are budgetary constraints as well. I, I personally like to cut in a room that I can invite. I mean, I'm cutting in a room that you could easily mix in. Got full 5.1 monitoring, a big screen, speakers are behind the screen, but at least what happens there is I know ex when I walk into the theater, there's no surprises, right? Whereas if you sit and cut on a laptop, you know, you're not going to know what you've got at all. So it's an interesting time right now because the technology is there. The access to that technology is it's time more than anything that, that really kills you. So speaking of time, before you, it gets to the mix stage, how many times are you guys sitting in the same room? talking well it's interesting because Steve and I have worked so many years together that we really haven't uh, like, like it's kind of symbiotic like his relationship with Adam or with uh, any director that he's worked with is really he follows the process as he says he you know he sees the assembly uh, or you know uh, uh, close to rough cut uh, then he reads the script and gets into what's missing in the the image and then he he does all of his stuff you know and then the music spotting happens so he does all of his stuff in his own domain and which is which is cool because that that means that he's preparing everything you know according to plan and then when we he comes into the studio when we we get the studio going we talk about track layout we talk about all of those things but just just emails and phone you know it's very precise it's very uh, detailed but it's nothing that would slow him down or freak us out especially in these days because we do have so much more um, capacity uh, we're a lot less nervous and he knows the we've worked so much together he knows the he knows the the, the layout and I know what he's going to bring, so there's never any kind of mystery anymore. I mean, we, we have worked together for 30 years, so it's kind of like a relationship, you know? When you go camping, you know he's going to bring the beer and I'm going to bring the uh, the candles and whatnot. And so... Yeah, who's getting the better deal there? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll get the beer next time. So, but, but, but what I mean is that we know exactly, you know, who's bringing what to the party, and then we just basically... It's, it's very calm, like it's very, very sort of organized. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said about having that relationship. Uh, certainly the dialogue evaluation, um, you know, we couldn't do without the mixer. And, and it's very important, in my opinion, to, to do the dialogue evaluation in the theater you're, you're going to be mixing in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, along the way, if there's, if there's any questions, especially, you know, 
technical issues that we're not sure about, you know, we'll just either drop by or throw a track, you know, throw a track up on an FTP site and say, Daniel, take a listen. I mean, are we in trouble here or, or what can we do? So I just want to ask a couple questions about your general philosophies, I guess, not necessarily related to the specific uh, pictures. Daniel, we worked on a project together many years ago. And one of the things that I noticed while working with you is that you are, if not the best, one of the better people I've ever witnessed in terms of dealing with the client. And I was always amazed the way you were able to talk to them in a, almost a lyrical or poetic way that brought them into the sound process. And I was wondering if you had any kind of philosophy behind that or? There's a bit of, of buttering up because obviously, um, you know, producers and directors, uh, you know, they walk in and, and it's their baby. So uh, as a midwife or as a, <laughs> as a midwife to the project, and you have also editors that you work with, which are also, they have uh, uh, either uh, an ego, uh, they also have expectations, and they also, their tracks are their baby. So everybody has this fragility, and then you've got a composer to, to boot. You remember there, there's the composer to deal with. The composer has probably as, as big an ego as the director. They may have been at loggerheads. So, so you have this whole sometimes conflicts, internal conflicts that you're not even aware of, right? They, they come walking into the room and come out screaming when you're in the middle of the, 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 the session. So what you have to do is work like the United Nations, right? So you, you deal with all the different processes and all the different people. And in the cases when you're not involved with the spotting, you know, and don't know where, what the whole history of the, the conflict is or whatever, you have to be able to deal with it as a mixer and say, how about if we do this? And everybody goes, oh, works for the picture editor, works for the composer, the director loves it, you know, the producer's happy because it takes less time. And then, so, so you move on. You know what I mean? Like a lot of, it, of these discussions are because of, not ignorance, but because they don't know what the other department can bring about. So as a mixer, you have to kind of mer mercurially or, you know, uh, forcefully put all of these elements together and make uh, decisions that may not be obvious to each party individually. And so that's where it becomes, that's why when you deal with people, you sort of accommodate everybody without saying, oh, no, no, let's take out that, the, the effect, then that'll save time. Uh, can, can, I, can I just, okay. can I revise your answer? Sure. <laughs> it's 20% mixing, 80% psychology. <laughs> it is actually a little bit because sometimes people have had a bad day even, and it has nothing to do with what's going on on the stage, and so they're just reactive. Uh, it is psychology, and after having worked with so many types of clients, like, uh, and on a scale, like a person like Adam is so professional that there's absolutely no, you know, he can, he can communicate, he can express himself, and we also have a long-time relationship, as with Steve, like of uh, 30 years, say, and so it's easy for us to w walk together and make decisions that everybody's happy with. Uh, same with Michael Dana, you know, like we, we very rarely have this, the, if any, there's no friction, you know, in, in those kinds of mixes. But when you work with a whole diaspora, like one time I was doing a film with German-Polish co-production. Have you ever been in a situation where there's Germans and Poles making the, the decisions uh, about a film about the Holocaust? Okay, so you get these really intense disagreements like intense where you know people are screaming at each other and they're not listening to each other and then 
you have to work on these films, so you're the sound, so you have to actually smooth all of that over so everybody loves everything that's being said, done, and, and you know, a, agree with everything. And uh, that takes more time than the actual mixing sometimes, than the actual mechanics of the mixing. Like where one party is throwing something at the other party and saying, no, they can't be speaking Yiddish, you know, blah, 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 whatever. They, all of these things start f uh, flying at you when you're in the middle of trying to make really huge decisions, especially on, on war epics. And when you have these parties fighting each other, half, half the energy that you have is, is diffusing it and getting f to move forward because you have like a, a schedule. You have to take people out in the alley and you know give them a, t a talking to. There's always like a large body of people working together, and and so what you have to do the psychology of it is is to always make them go in the same direction without making them feel like like, especially if they're not uh, super adept at it, or or they're not completely connected to it, is to get them engaged, and and that's really the hardest part. So you have a group of editors. A, group, a composer with you know recordists and you know et cetera et cetera, and what you have to do is find a unity in it so that the sound when you get to the final mix stage, you know it's not like going into a studio and recording a band or an orchestra or you know even doing a complex album, it's more complicated than that. So uh, you, what you want to do is find a unity of sound at the point when you start mixing that's completely um, you know it's, it's sticking together and things are working very easily. And um, and when working with large groups, it's very complex because some people hear differently than others. Uh, some people have different sensibilities. Some people, uh, some people's idea of precision is not the same as other people's idea of precision. It boils down to communication. Yeah, ninety-nine percent of the time, the mixes are, you know, the discussions are purely about creative and moving the project forward. I mean, everyone on the crew is there for the same reason, to make the film as good as possible. Uh, you have to keep that in mind. That So listening is, is incredibly important. Where you run into trouble is when the communication isn't there. Um, and I've worked on, on projects where maybe one meeting with the director or a meeting with the director you know, via Skype or what have you, and you show up in the, mix, or in the, in the mixing theater and it's like, well, that's not what I want. And it's like, well, how do we, how do we fix this? Mm -hmm. Um, or you haven't communicated with the composer. I mean, if you've both done something for a scene that are, your sound design element is going in one direction, music's going in another, then there's going to be a problem. So communication is. Uh, but when you're working with outside editors, can you give me some things, advice that maybe for our listeners of mistakes that editors make that are pet peeves of yours? Without <laughs> naming names. Without naming names. <laughs> no, I think, you know... You know, ADR, for example, if um, you're dealing with, a, in, in, with today's technology, this has happened, you know, more than not. If you're dealing with a, um, a studio that really hasn't recorded a lot of ADR before, um, or, you know, a, a recordist that hasn't recorded a lot of ADR. On Devil's Knot, for example, all our group ADR, uh, we ended up shooting down in Atlanta and... Um, Primarily because we needed the accents. The accents, pure accents. I mean, yeah, we could have put together an ADR group and kind of faked it, but you wouldn't get the vernacular, the colloquial. So, team of actors was was put together, and we recorded down there. And um, the studio we recorded in had never recorded ADR, and the room kind of wasn't set up 
to group ADR. But fortunately, the recorder, the fellow who recorded it was awesome. And we got through it. And the actors had never done any group ADR before. But I would do that again in a heartbeat because the material we got was absolutely fantastic. Was it exactly sort of technically and how I would have done it if it was here? Absolutely not. But it did the trick. Everyone did their best. If we went down and recorded it again, it would be that much better. So how do you guys approach perspective changes in the mix? So for my part, that's really, really easy. Cut, 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 drop, (laughs) right? Over to Daniel. (laughs) Well, depending on the environment they're in, if they're in a large room or if they're on a cliff. But there's no hard and fast rule. Some people play less perspective. Some people play it as it looks and some people exaggerate it. You know, depend, it depends stylistically on, on the director slash mixer, editor, you know, what they decide. Because sometimes, you know, in uh, The Captive, Adam made a, an aesthetic decision that the telephones in certain conversations didn't need to sound like those telephone perspectives. They could be almost like it was a conversation between two people in the same room. And he, he often does that to just sort of keep a kind of closeness and an, a slight imbalance to the audience that they're not actually used to. They're used to hearing everything switch on the, yeah, on the cut. Yeah, yeah, futz. And I find that really arresting because we don't, you know, normally we just do it and everybody's happy and nobody really, you know, wants to experiment. But in his case, he wants to sort of bring this kind of uneasy and unusual closeness. And it's more emotional. And it actually, in a certain way, it, it unbalances your perspective a little bit, which is kind of cool. You know, it, it makes it more intimate, in fact. The, the distance is removed a little bit from the, from the effect of the uh, telephone. And he's great at that. Like, he, he'll go, no, 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 leave it, leave it natural. Leave it natural. Let's see how it works. And then he watches the whole movie. And if he wants to tweak a little more or, or less, directors like Adam like to experiment with those things. And he likes to sort of see sort of different perspectives on things. And that's what's really amazing is that it's never quite the same in, in every film he does. So he likes to explore things. And, you know, that, that's the best directors. When you're working with somebody, those are the best directors to work with. When, they, when they're not sure, they don't empirically tell you, yeah, I want a, a bus that sounds like a regular city bus. You know, when, when they allow you to make some design choices and some mixed choices that are completely freeform and that actually give an emotional uh, support to the scene or what's about to happen or what's just happened. And they sort of let you sort of go in a, in a slightly more... They let you do your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. But it, it, it gives you a bit more of a lyrical, poetic uh, hand at the job you do. So in, in other words, it's much more creative and, 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 and it's more fun you know, for us. Excellent. So thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with us. This was really great. Um, we really appreciate it. No worries. Okay, thanks to Daniel and Steve for talking to us. If you have not had a chance to see either of these films or The Sweet Hereafter, find a way to check them out soon. You can see trailers for them all on our website, tonebenders.com. Once again, we want to thank everyone who listens and participates in the show, and a special thanks to Stacey DePass for lending us her voice for our intros. Thanks again, stay tuned, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. 
keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.